Hey, everybody. My name is Rob Shear, and I'm the founder of a national nonprofit called Comfort Cases. I'm also an advocate for children in our foster care system, a public speaker, an author of a book, A Forever Family. But most importantly, I am the father of four amazing children. Hi, I'm Dana McKay, and I saw Rob on The Ellen Show, and when I realized his organization was based right here where I live, I knew I had to get involved. I'm also a social media consultant, a radio host, a podcast producer, and a mother of two children. See, our country's foster care system is shattered, and this podcast is about how we as a community can come together to bring about change, changing the system, and changing the lives of children in care. Welcome to the Fostering Change Podcast. We are here with my amazing, wonderful friend, Jill, who, by the way, Jill, you're not only a mother, you're also a foster mother, but you're also, uh, you sit on our board at Comfort Cases. I do. I wouldn't call it sitting on the board. I would say actively moving the Actively board. moving actively on the board. Actively moving the board. I'm going to have to remember that, by the way, Dana, because- <laughs> This board doesn't sit. The board doesn't sit. There's a lot of moving parts. But, you know, I wanted to, to invite Jill on our Fostering Change podcast because as a mother who not only has adopted through the system, um, but a mother who is still very active in the foster care system and- and very active within our county and our state. And um, I think you have a lot to bring to the table. And I also want to talk about your amazing sister. Oh, who, thank you. Who, yes, she will love the shout out yes. to my amazing sister, Michelle. Yeah, we're a whole village. Yeah, whole village. And, you know, we're going to have Michelle on here. Dana, you know, Jill will talk a little bit about Michelle as well. But I think we definitely we're going to do we're going to do this, you know, Michelle and Jill show. I, I think it should be. But but Jill, tell us a little bit about you and, and how you got into becoming a, a foster parent. Sure. So I'm a former D.C. public school teacher. And in, you know, working with my students, I found that a lot of my students had needs outside of the classroom, which most teachers will say, regardless of wherever you teach, that's always pretty common. My students, when they came to me, I was a teacher in the late 90s when the crack epidemic was just flowing through D.C. And very similar to the opioid epidemic that's happening right now, that crack epidemic left our students that, you know, I taught seventh grade. So that 12, 13-year-olds, you know, they're very vulnerable population. And they would come and they would sit in my classroom and I would do tutoring. And then I found that they didn't want to leave. They wanted to hang out a little bit more because it was safer in my classroom. It was safer there than in the streets that they were in. There was no one home to greet them. There was no lights in some of their homes. And so I became a foster parent because one of my students brought to me this little note and she said, I I don't know what to do. I don't have electricity. I haven't had it for over a year. It's getting very dark and cold in my room and I don't know what to do. And I said, let's, let's get more invested. Let's get fully in. I was single at the time. I had no children, had a couple dogs, but I knew that in order to get invested in her life safely, I needed to take some classes and I needed to become a licensed foster parent. So, so here you are in the nineties, a single woman, by the way, you know, we talked about the myths of foster care. You know, you can be single and become a foster parent. So here you are a teacher, which by the way, thank you for that. And to be a teacher in DC, I lived in DC for over 20 years. I know those school systems there and, and, and for you to do that, but to have a young, Young lady come to you and say, and I'm getting chills thinking about the fact of not having electricity. It's awful. It's just, yeah. For a whole year, an entire year, you do not have electricity. How can we allow that? You know, I mean, there's got to be something 
prior to her coming to you that there were not people that had were in her life or in her home or that that knew that she didn't have electricity so she was one of those kids and a lot of my dc kids were like this they were so high functioning all the time like they wouldn't have let me see under the cover for a long period of time like it was just me noticing that she was hanging out a lot more she would not she did not want to go home and then she say you know can I can I come home with you and I lived in a townhouse and I was like okay well we, we need to work this out as a teacher we can't just take our students home with us we really have to give some safeguards for both of us both she and myself um, but she taught me more about the amount of resiliency in these kids. I mean, just incredible resiliency. She is such a success story. This this uh, student, now grown woman with a child of her own, works for DSS, not here, um, but became a social worker. And, and, and I went through her life um, kind of because she let me, and she let me in. And a lot of my students in D.C., they let me in. They showed me what was on the underside of what happens in the 90s when you don't have parents or you don't have adults that are protecting you. Not only no electricity, but no food in the cupboards, no safe place to go home to at night, no place to even walk to after school that could help you with your homework, no adult to kind of walk you through things like graduating from high school. And then whenever it came time for her to go to college and and going through those paper, all that paperwork that is a huge barrier. So all those things educated me. You know, I I taught her how to drive and I said it was the funniest thing because here I am this young teacher who really hadn't thought about all those things that you need that you rely on your parents for. You know, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but you and I both know those are the things that you need an adult, a trusted adult to say, hey, I, I need some clothes for this event, or I need somebody to show up and talk to this teacher and advocate for my grades, or I need some special tutoring for this because I don't know what I'm going to do next. She taught me more, and those students in D.C. taught me more about things that I didn't necessarily know growing up in rural West Virginia, which is where I grew up, but also things that you don't necessarily want to see about your community, things you kind of just want to clock out and and walk away from. But once she showed me those, I couldn't walk away anymore. I couldn't say I didn't see it. Yeah. You know, I say that all the time that, you know, once we educate you and we tell you what's going on, how can you truly walk away and say you didn't see it? So here this young lady is, she comes into your home. You've read our book, A Forever Family. And so you, thank you, thank you. But I talk about our classes. Um, What were those classes like back in the the late 90s? What were were they like? Well, one of the, I think, gifts of getting my first certification is that it made whenever I got my Maryland certification certification much easier because I there were some barriers but a whole lot less of barriers because I was already a classroom teacher I already had a lot of the background checks that were necessary but a lot of the classes were taught during a time that was it was difficult for me to get to I was again a single a woman who had a full career and really to be able to get certified wasn't easy. There are a lot of less barriers in Montgomery County for me to become a foster parent, but they still are barriers. You know, the time the classes are taught, the fact that they were not taught online because this is the late nineties. No one was teaching them online. Sometimes they would teach them all day Saturdays and that would be whenever I would have her. So I'd have to choose between sending her back home, which wasn't necessarily safe to taking these classes 
for her and for all the kids that would eventually come into my home. So it really was, that was one of the many barriers. You know, I happen to have a two bedroom townhouse, but if I hadn't had a two bedroom townhouse, that would have been another barrier. The fact that the one bedroom had bunk beds in it. So I had to unbunk the beds. The bunk beds. (laughs) Don't you, Dana, the bunk beds. I had to unbunk the beds. And that's still a barrier in Montgomery County. You know, I'll I'll talk a little bit about that. So it's, so, okay, so I. It's still a thing. Oh my God. So I know it's in DC. Yes. It's no bunk beds in dc but i didn't know that it was montgomery county as well that (gasps) so let me let me fast forward to this so you know we've been my husband and i've been foster parents for 13 years that doesn't count the foster parenting that i did before he and i met we had i had a whole other life before he met um but we became foster parents because he knew that came with the second date so before we went on the second date he i you know he's he's a cutie uh you know rob you know that one that man he's (laughs) yes he is he's a cutie (laughs) But I said, listen, this is what I come with. I come with a whole lot of baggage that you don't see. And this happens to be that this is my passion. Like these kids are my passion. They will continue whether or not they stay with me. And and eventually all the kids were reunified with their parents. Um, I stayed in contact with their parents. So we went to high school graduations together. We went to college graduations together. We do, you know, great birthday parties for the grandkids together. But I told him, this is what comes with me. So you're in or you're out. Um, and he was 100% in. And so that's how I knew he was the keeper because once we started taking those classes, not only are the bunk beds a thing, um, but, he, you know, all of our kids that we've adopted, and we've adopted four kids, they're a sibling group now. That's what I always say when people say, you have a sibling group. And I said, they're a sibling group now. Right. Um, four different races. And that's what Montgomery County looks like. But we became emergency foster parents. So emergency foster parents. And, and I, I really want to paint a picture of what it looks like in Montgomery County. Because most people don't realize that just they will assume certain things in D.C. that don't happen in Montgomery County. But there's a lot of similarities, which is every Friday night, if you're a foster parent on the emergency list, you are getting called every Friday night to take a child. When we're on the emergency list, we could have a child and it's, it's, it's inevitable that it'll be a Friday night or a Saturday night whenever the child gets picked up. Anytime, normally in the middle of the night, you're getting this phone call and you have to be prepared to say yes and find the bed that they can sleep in. And it really does depend on the gender of the child and the age of the child how many kids we can take at what time. So all of our kids came to us as emergency placements in the middle of the night. So whenever everybody's, you know, comfortable in their bed tonight, there are hundreds of emergency foster parents who pick up their landline phone, because that's another rule. You have to have a landline phone in Montgomery County. um, And you have to be able to pick up the phone and say yes or no to children. And every time that we've said no, I wonder where do they go? You know, where is... Where is that child that was found in the middle of the highway with no name? Where is that child who was comes with frostbite? Where is that child going that was found in a microwave? Where is that child that was picked up by the police that has a, a, several other siblings and none of them are wearing any clothes? Where are they? Where do they go? And that's why I have a huge passion for recruiting more people. And, and whether or not you can open up your home, you can't say you didn't know, because if you're listening to this podcast, you now know that this is what's going on in one of the wealthiest counties in the United States. So one of the wealthiest counties in the United States that that every Friday or and Saturday, there are these calls that are coming. You know, I've had I've had people say, um, I can't I can't um, invest that much time. But what I'm hearing is, you know, being in an emergency 
you know, foster parent. Does that mean, so explain that to me. Does that mean that that child will have to stay with you for months at a time or is it a temporary thing? What, what, what is, what, what does that mean? So that's a great question. So we've had placements that have been a day because I work full time and my husband works full time. And sometimes that's what we can do. We can relieve the pressure for the day. So when we get this phone call in the middle of the night, two, three, four o'clock in the morning, when the social worker is really trying to just find a safe bed for them to go to, that we can welcome them into our home for a day because either I'm traveling or, or my husband Neil is traveling or something's going on with our family that we can't take him for any longer. There are foster parents who will say, well, I can do a weekend or I can do a week. And it, and it just gets that child out of the emergency situation. So you provide them with a comfort case, which we always love when they come from Montgomery County because they come with a comfort case. But we also provide them with what I call the, the thing that I always tell all of my kids. And, and one would assume the first thing you tell a child is, oh, I love you, right? And that's not what I tell our children. We tell them that you're safe and you belong here. And every child, regardless of the age of the child, that resonates with them. Like, you're safe and you belong here. And for however long they're here, they're here. So in the case of the four that we have that are officially adopted, those kids all came as emergencies. Um, Neil and I had a place that we could continue to keep them. and We had room in our home and room in our heart. And so all four of them came as emergencies in the middle of the night and got to stay. So you now have a fifth one. We do have a fifth one. Yeah, do have a yes, fifth yes, one. We have and, a fifth one. And she came also in the middle of the night. Absolutely, absolutely. And in one of the things that I really want to advocate for too is I think that there's a lot of work that our social work system does that is behind the scenes that is amazing and it never gets highlighted. We've had some of the hardest working, amazing social workers. Lisa Merkin is head of DSS right now and has done a great job of bringing foster parents to the table when things aren't working. You know this with the board. Like, I'm going to tell you when it's not working. I don't sit on the board. Which, by the way, I love, love, love that about Jill. Um, You know, we always say this all the time. It's not personal. Um, It's the fact that she loves me and I love her and I love the fact that she will say it like it is. And people need to do that. Absolutely. And they definitely need to do that when it comes to, you know, CPS. Absolutely. Um, And I agree with you. You know, I, I talked to Dana. I've talked to you about Lisa Merkin before. Absolutely, and, yes. And um, about, you know, I think Lisa's done such an absolute wonderful job. And, you know, we just talked to a social worker who she'd been a social worker for 30 years. And um, it's not an easy job. It's not an easy job. But I will also have to say to you, Jill, and, you know, it's, I, I believe that we don't have a lot of good false um social workers as well we need more we need more you know and the problem is is the really good ones have it all on their shoulders and the ones who are just barely getting by are making some really bad decisions absolutely And and the decisions really are made in the middle of the night with very little information they have slightly more than the foster parent does there have been times in which the only way i find out the gender of the child is through the body parts. I don't know when they come. I don't ask. It doesn't matter to us what race or gender. We just need to know where to place them in our home, in, in what which bedroom. Um, in this last child that came, I knew she was a girl, but I'd also said no at 530 because I knew I was leaving to do a speech. And I knew I couldn't take her because leaving my husband all, all alone with four kids is enough. And so I said, I'm sorry, I can't. And my kids were all kind of like talking, oh, mom, we can, we can. I'm like, we can't, we can't. You know, my oldest is 14. She's amazing, but we couldn't. 
So I, you know, I said I couldn't. And then two hours later, they called me back and they do what social workers do when they can't find a home. They continue to circle the beltway of Washington, D.C. until they find a safe place to go. So that's that's what's happening in your county. They are circling the beltway to try to find a place that will accept a child in the middle of the night. In this case, it was like 830 by then because I'd said no at 530. They called me back and said, could you just give us a night? I said, absolutely. I cannot have any child. There's always room at our table. There's always room in our home. I will scoot over. Everyone will scoot over. You know, and who taught me that? Those four amazing, resilient children who would give every single child that walked in, every single toy, every single piece of clothing, because we don't, we didn't have any baby stuff. I, after the last one, I said, I am done with babies. I had donated it all to the foster closet. There were 26 bags of clothes and bassinets, all that stuff. And I said, I'm not doing babies anymore. So when she came and the social worker said, where is she going to sleep? I was like, uh, yeah, like, where is she going to sleep? I, <laughs> I'm wondering the same thing. Like I sent Neil to Target and he started filling the cart at Target. That's what that support that we need as foster parents. That would have been great to be able to call somebody else and say, hey, can you loan me a pack and play? Can you loan me, can you give me a pack of diapers? Can you give me this type of formula? And to have somebody be able to run out and do that, that would be a huge support. So you don't have to be a foster parent. You can be that person that the foster parent calls and says, absolutely, I'll run to Target. What do you need? What size are they? What, what do you need? And does that exist? Or it doesn't. It doesn't exist. It, 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 it zero. But so in Arizona, I, I there's a there's a th- um, place in Arizona now that it's just I I'm actually excited to fall, fly out in the fall to meet this founder um, who started this organization and it's a huge warehouse and it is for foster parents and so it is cribs diapers clothes all brand new by the way this isn't this is all brand new stuff and it's this and it's it's called Arizona help and it has gotten so big that the governor of Arizona has now said listen up if you choose to donate $500 on your state taxes a month i mean a year to this organization we'll match it so they can have funding so that and so i've seen pictures it's been all on the that you can actually go there and could you imagine some like that no, like I, our, people can't see my hands, but I'm doing I mean, the, the, like yes. yeah, yeah, hallelujah praise. That because would be I'm amazing. telling you, those are the things that that the lack of support, the lack of you know, hey, I need a crib, absolutely. You know, I need a pack and play. Um, I need diapers. You know, I hear people say all the time that oh, the government gives you enough money. No, no. you know, I guarantee you, when Neil's running out, by the way, Target, it, you have to meet Neil because he's amazing. <laughs> but I know when Neil's running out in Target. He's not once in his mind saying, well, the state will reimburse oh, me. Because, no. by the way, they, they don't. don't. Oh, no, absolutely no, not. No, right, no. right. They don't. Okay. And um, so so, I, so, what I'm hearing from you is the one thing that there seems to be lack of is the support. Absolutely. And I think that's why, again, why Comfort Cases is so important. Because she came with one the next day. At the time... They were planning on placing her. I don't, I'm not sure why the comfort case wasn't in the car at the time, but there have been many times in which kids will get their comfort case the next day, which for a foster parent, I use, you know, I normally keep sizes zero to size 14 girls and boys in both genders to be able to serve as an emergency foster parent. But again, Neil and I were done with this stage. And so when they kind of recruit you to come back, it's because there is such a need that same week and, and, Comfort cases can verify this. There were two sets of sibling sets of six. 
Now, in Montgomery County, who do you know has a completely empty house that can take a sibling group of six? Six. Six. And I don't want to separate kids ever. I always want to keep sibling sets together. But there are not many people who have that big of a home who have that kind of resources that could fit a sibling group. And there were two of them that came in the same week. So when they called us, it's because other people had stepped in and stepped up and said, yeah, I can take three of those kids or I can take two of those kids. One woman took a set of twins. She's a single mom who took a set of twins, and those kids immediately went to the emergency room because of the neglect they had had. So the, the support is necessary. CASA workers, we need desperately need CASA workers, people who can advocate for kids. We need other parents and family members who can say, you know what, I can't be a foster parent right now, but I can definitely support foster families. Um, I have wonderful people that are in my village. We talked a little bit about my sister, Michelle. My sister, Michelle, lives in Philadelphia, though. So she has a village that really is set up for kids ages 0 to to 18. How many kids has she had in her home? Well, how many kids has she had in her home? Or how, how does she have ki- now? How, well, how many kids, how many kids does she have now? She has 11 now. 11 right now. 11. One now. biological. Yeah. 11. Wow. How many, how many kids from the system has she had through her door? So I asked, she and her husband, Marco have been doing this for about 30 years and they were foster parents in Virginia. The first child to ever call me mommy was one of her foster children. Um, and I said, you know, a child in the system often will call any mother figure mom. And I didn't know that. And it just pricked my heart and probably alerted me for things to come. Um, but they've had hundreds. And I, I don't know the exact amount. I know ours are 18. We've had 18 children that have come into our home. I th- She's had hundreds because she's lived in Pennsylvania and in Virginia and hasn't, you know, is currently a a foster family as well to a teenage mother and her two children. And by the way, this teenage mother blows every stereotype out of the water. She is an amazing, amazing teenage mother. She would just, I mean, she is deeply, deeply invested in her children. She was pregnant at 14. And you're, sister's state um are those children automatically in foster care the, the siblings i mean her kids the, yeah. so so she is a ward of the state and her children are as well yes absolutely um that doesn't always occur it depends on the the parenting of the child actually the parenting of the teen mom and whether or not she's willing to continue along a parenting journey you know the the girl that my sister has has to sign you know certain paperwork that she agrees to continue to stay in school that she continues to have her children stay in school that she has a court appointed attorney but she also has social workers that help pour into her you know my sister has gotten to the level where she doesn't necessarily pour so much into the um, the kids is the moms and the dads to support them because they've been in the system too so for them to be in the system and expect that they'll be able to parent their children well is it's not natural. You really have to pour into them or else you won't break the generational curse. Her new passion, and she and her husband have been working on this for three years, is her new nonprofit to have children who have aged out of foster care and to have teen moms have a place to go so they can have advocates that are like myself who have been foster parents for many years who really want to pour into these children and teach them, like, it's, it's okay. We have a whole village to support you and how to parent. Jill, where did we fail? I think in multiple places, absolutely multiple places we've failed. First of all, we're not recognizing that that crack epidemic in the 90s left children in a generational curse that has led to a opioid addiction that is happening in the 2000s that are leading children alone, that same group of children alone. I think we've failed in multiple ways to get everybody in the game. You can't stand on the sidelines and make policy work 
and say, you know what, I think those foster children need some support and then continue to pour into places that the money and the children don't match up. Um, and I think that continues to happen. I think that there is a lot of people in policy and in educational policy as well as child advocacy policy that it's really not for the children. It's really supporting organizations that really don't get their hands dirty and in it. They're not getting those calls at midnight. They're not getting those, you know, kids that have those stories. They're not walking through it every day. You know, you're in it every day and that's what keeps your eyes open. It's, it's hard to watch. It's hard to look at. And I, and, and I think I said this about your book. I wanted to read it again, but it was so hard to read the first time because so much of that is, is Neil and I's life and, and knowing that it's also yours. You know, you do the work every day, so you can't close your eyes. And I think that that's what we need in our policy work. We need to recognize the national health crisis that is the opioid epidemic that is leaving children without parents and leaving them without grandparents because in the 90s, those grandparents were addicted. Right. So we have generations of people that can't pour into our kids. So, yeah, no, I I agree with you. I I agree with you when it comes to the drugs. The whole breakdown of family within itself has been, you know, the 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 previous um, podcast we did the other day, she the person talked about, you know, reunification is where it needs to be. And I'm a true believer in reunification. But Dana, tell the story about the little boy that you told. Well, me this morning, which by the way, there are a bunch I had to get up and leave because this, this, it's just heartbreaking. But uh, well, you probably saw it the little boy, the four year old boy in Baltimore. This just happened this past week. Um, he was just found in a dumpster, and the foster mom talked to the newspapers and talked to the TV channels and said, I loved that boy, you know, and she wanted to keep him. And whatever happened, he went back and was reunited with his mother. And a couple weeks later, it it turned into a tragedy. And I know that in Florida, this happened um, about a year ago. Same kind of story. Little boy, foster family, loved him, wanted to keep him. And they put put him back with his parents. um, And he was dead within a couple weeks. And there's actually a law they're working on passing. It, It didn't pass last year for some reason, but they're reintroducing it. It's called Jordan's Law in Florida to just fix some of the problems and the communication and what's going on and who's making these decisions and why. So, and there's probably not a foster parent in, in any of these systems that doesn't have one of those stories and those children don't have a voice. So it becomes national news for a hot second and that's it. Hot second. That's about it. Right. And And there's all these people who say, I would take that baby. I would have taken him. I would have taken him, but I don't think those people are actually making the move to be foster parents beyond just commenting and saying that. Those who are listening to this podcast, I mean, every one of us can do something. Absolutely. But, you know, and again, I, I am a believer in reunification, but I just feel like we have failed our children with reunification with how we do it. I think that, you know, children, it should not be a, I'm pulling from you. You know, I loved when you just said just earlier, you said, um, I'm still in the lives of those kids that were in my home and I'm in the lives of their families. And by the way, Jill, that is not happening throughout our country. 
It's not happening. It's not happening in our county of Montgomery County. It's not happening in our state. And it's not happening in our country. And so we're having more children that are damaged, that are having these issues when it comes to being attached because they're yanked from, you know, yanked from their birth parent, given to a foster parent, yanked from the foster parent, given back to the birth parent. And I've even seen the cases where the social workers feel like they have egg on their face. And when they've been yanked back from the birth parent, they don't go back to the original foster parent. You know, right. because they don't want to hear, I told you so. Absolutely. They stick the kid in another home. Yeah. So one of the things that I, I talk about, and I, I say this quite often, is that I believe that we all must come to the table. When it comes to a foster parent, a bio, you really want your parent, your kids back, uh, come to the table. Absolutely. Let's talk about, let's do the best what's for the child. You just said it. They have no voice. They have well, a voice. And the relationship that we've built with some of our children's biological families, and it's not just, sometimes the, the biological parent is not safe. And so we've had to make that rough choice of, okay, well, you know, is there an aunt? Is there an uncle? Is there a grandparent? And there's always someone, there's somebody that, that possibly we could talk to. And I may not be able to, to let them have that relationship where it's day to day. Because maybe they're not safe day to day, but maybe they're safe enough that I can have conversations with them and we can have these start these relationship in which I can start talking to them about healthy ways to approach certain behaviors. Because that's where also foster parents, we don't have the support that we need. Once our kids enter school age and they're adopted, you know, trauma sensitive schools is something I have pushed hard for in Montgomery County. If I have to see another, let me see a baby picture. Let me see a, um, let's do a family tree project. Let's do, I push hard for that. And I am a force to be reckoned with when it comes to that stuff, because I I was a science teacher to begin with. So it's not even scientifically good, good curriculum, but I really, really talk to them about, you know, sensitive schools and what, how we approach our kids in care. And the fact that you're asking for a baby picture, but what if they don't have anything but a teenage picture? Okay, we'll send that. No, we will not. Yes. Oh my God. We just talked about this, Dana. Right. And for me, you know, I don't, I don't understand that. I do now. But before, I would have been like, what's the big deal? You know, because I just haven't been exposed to any of this. And I have two kids that have their parents. And we have plenty of baby pictures. But now hearing it, it makes me think of it in a completely different way. That, of course, we need to be sensitive to these kids who have already experienced so much. They don't need to be sitting in school trying to focus and then having to worry about this trauma that they've experienced. So, you know, it, it's the thing I talk about with that whole donuts for dads and muffins for moms. And Jill, you and I are on the same page. That's ridiculous to have that. And by the way, if you don't want to talk about the children that are in the foster care system, let's talk about the kids who've lost their mother to cancer. Are the kids who have lost their fathers and mothers in the war, okay? Those are children who are reminded every single semester when we send that flyer home saying donuts for dads, muffins for moms, that they don't have a mom. They don't have a dad, you know, and we must remind them. The same thing, I'm so glad in my my school and my county that we did not have daughter-daddy dances. You know, my daughter didn't miss out, by the way, because her and I did not go dancing on the floor. She would have been embarrassed anyway. But, but what I would have loved to have seen is maybe a dance for butterflies or, uh, you know, something. We can Absolutely. be Absolutely. I have a son who would love himself a dance for butterflies, dance let me for, tell you. Yes. Let's but just be, welcome them all. Yes, be <laughs> creative and welcome them all, but stop 
isolating. Absolutely. Stop isolating because you're right. We're bringing trauma. You know, I, I cringe. I literally cringe my, oh my gosh, my son, my son, Tristan, my baby who came to us when he was six months. Um, this is his last elementary school year. He's going into fifth grade. And I am so absolutely excited because I don't have to have the conversation that I've had to have every single year for all of my children in elementary school to say, as we go meet the teacher in August, I say the following things. Number one, realize that my child has two parents and they happen to both be dads. Number two, my child is from a interracial couple. You know, he's African-American, we're white. Number three, don't ever say to my child on Mother's Day, but you have to make a Mother's Day present because everybody has a mother. You know, these are things we have to educate yes. our public about, but it's difficult for us, Jill, is it Absolutely. not? Absolutely. And, and even to explain children's behaviors, when you come from a situation of trauma where there is no food, food insecurity is very, very common for our kids in care. And so my kids will have certain behaviors way past the fact that they are completely full at home that I have to will often have to sit down and explain why my son or my daughter is doing certain behaviors around food where it looks like they are the never ending pit that they're not getting enough food it's not I I had a conversation with a teacher and I said this is not about food this is about him telling himself that he's got to control the amount of food, that mom and dad are not supplying what he needs, and so he's going to have to control that for himself. And every little snack you slide him, and every little time you tell me you don't tell me what he's doing so he doesn't get in trouble, that lets him know he's still in control of getting himself food, where I've worked years to make sure he knows there is enough and I will always supply you what you need. That takes years of, of trauma building. And by the way, I... I've, we've had this conversation. I'm 52 and I talk about the hamburger helper. So in my house, if you come to my home, you will find boxes of hamburger helper in the cabinet. We don't eat it. But the reason is because I psychologically cannot open up a cabinet and see something empty because I remember what it was like to be hungry. I remember what it was like not to have. And so Reese will look at those packages of Hamburger Helper. And by the way, also the Lipton noodle, you get 10 for... For us, it's the blue box. It's macaroni and cheese in the craft blue yeah, box. It's, you get it's the always got to be there. 10 for $10. And I went to the store the other day and I bought... And Reese said, look at the cabinet, Rob. And I opened up the cabinet and there must have been 20 of these packets. And I have this as a kid with hunger issues absolutely um 52 i can't get rid of it can't get rid of it what i love though is that my kids know an adult adoptee that is successful so whenever my daughter walked in here to give you a hug which i like, love her so you know much. my kids have got to meet great people because of you lester holt being one of them and really <laughs> if you look at the picture of us with lester holt my kids are all centered around rob because he is the superstar to my kids because It makes sense when they come here to comfort cases. It makes sense whenever they can fold some pajamas because what they see is then the next child coming in with a comfort case. And, you know, I have a daughter who hugs and kisses every stuffed animal when she packs them because she wants somebody to know in her own story that you are loved. I see you. 
There is dignity in that. It's not about a stuffed animal. It's not about a toothbrush and toothpaste. It truly is about my kids seeing this cycle of giving back and making sense of their own stories. And you help them do that. This Comfort Cases helps them do that. Well, I'm going to tell you, it's a community that's been doing that. And I say it all the time. Our community is not our zip code. I've been able to meet some amazing people and have such amazing friends. Jill, you being one of my friends, you and Neil, you know, Reese and I and the kids. I mean, like I said, I I lean on you more than you realize. But, you know, as we're coming to a close with this um, podcast, Fostering Change, you know, Jill, we always ask um, our guests two questions. And Dana, what, what are those questions that we ask? If you could change two things about the foster care system right now, what would they be? There's so many things. I so, know. That's why we give you two, two instead of just one. So it's number one, you can't say you didn't hear the story because if you've listened this far, we've told you enough of the story for you to get involved, um, get involved in some way, become a CASA, volunteer at comfort cases, volunteer to help a foster parent, volunteer to be a respite foster parent. Um, and the second thing is, is support the parents that are in the game every day. Support them in some way. You know, my kids can't necessarily go to a lot of after-school things because they have therapy and lots and lots of therapy. So there's lots of ways you could support us. We are constantly on the go and back and forth. There are foster parents all over this county, all over the state, and all over this country who could use that kind of support. You know, if you're an art therapist and you can donate an hour, donate an hour to a foster kid. Really think about how to donate that time that you have as an adult because the kids, this community, like you say, is not your zip code. This community can be only fixed with all of us at the table. And I agree. And I agree. And I say it all the time. If you cannot adopt, foster. If you cannot foster, volunteer. And if you can't volunteer, you need to check yourself in the mirror and find out what is your purpose. Because we all have stake in this game as Jill raises her hands. Everybody, thank you so much again for listening to Fostering Change. You know, this is a podcast that we hope truly will make change within our foster care system. You're going to hear Jill back again um, we're going to have her and her sister Michelle back, which I'm so excited to talk to both of them. We were able to go be at the gala with them, and I was able to get to know Michelle. And, you know, I'm just so excited. And, Jill, thank you. Thank you for all that you do, not only for the children who are in the system, but for all you do for comfort cases. And so, again, from Dana and I, thank you so much. Remember, you have the ability to make change, so make it today. Thank you. Dana and I would like to thank all of you for listening to the Fostering Change podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Make sure you follow Comfort Cases on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Comfort Cases. And check out the Fostering Change blog at comfortcases.org. So everybody, we want to hear your stories. So reach out to us if you would like to be a guest on the podcast. You can find me on Facebook at Rob Shear, Instagram at Rob underscore Shear, and on Twitter at Rob Shear 6. And please share this podcast and leave us a review. Remember, we're all part of the same community. Your zip code, it's not your community, but it's our human race. Let's all make a difference.